breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to another episode of Reform This. Always an honor to be with you. Thank you. Thank you for coming back. If you've listened before, if you're new, I hope you're looking for not only a patriotic voice, a a voice that takes on conventional wisdom, a voice that lets you hear from an American Muslim things you just never thought you could. And the fact that that silent majority, that voice within the Muslim community that looks for diversity, that challenges the powers that be, you will find here. And week to week, I take on those issues that are on the front page or in the back that maybe should be on the front page. This week, I want to talk about three things. We're going to talk about Boris Johnson's claim that Islam put the world centuries behind. We'll also get our update as the news cycle continues to be this tit-for-tat between the left, Ilhan Omar, their so-called suicide squad. No, I'm sorry, their squad. I hate that term. Gives them... uh, uh, more respect than they deserve, but uh, I think Suicide Squad uh, fits uh, pretty good. And third, briefly, we'll talk about the resurgence of ISIS in Iraq and in Syria. So first, you know, Boris Johnson is a leading politician in Britain, and uh, a number of pundits, including Douglas Murray at The Spectator, talked about uh, how the headline at The Guardian read that Boris Johnson claimed that Islam put world cent- put the Muslim world centuries behind, quote-unquote. And then it quoted Francis Proudhon, who said that anger, as 2007 essay lamenting, no spread of democracy in the Islamic world comes to light. So... And he further said, Boris Johnson has been strongly criticized for arguing that Islam has caused the Muslim world to be literally centuries behind the West in an essay unearthed, unearthed, as if it was hard to find, by The Guardian. Wow. You know, Johnson's book, 2006, as Doug points out, lays this out. You know, and the the question is, is is this fair? Johnson said there must be something about Islam that indeed helps to explain why there was no rise of the bourgeoisie, no liberal capitalism, and therefore no spread of democracy in the Muslim world. It is extraordinary to think that under the Roman Byzantine Empire, the city of the Constantinople kept the candle of learning alight for a thousand years. And that under Ottoman rule, the first printing press was not seen in Istanbul until the middle of the 19th century. Something caused them to literally be centuries behind. He notes the the Muslim Council of Britain, an Islamist outfit. I think it's not just outrageous, but provocative for someone to point this out. So... The issue is, 
this is what my work is about. Yes, I, I w- would not have said Islam keeps the Muslim world. I would have said Islamism. And I'm not in any way deluded into thinking that Islamism is not predominant Islam today. It certainly is. Where Muslim majorities are, you have either Islamism into the legal system, the Sharia structure, or you have a frankly theocratic Islamist state. But shades of theocracy dominate Muslim-majority countries, and that shade of theocracy is what has paralyzed Muslim communities. And even immigrant communities, they bring with them the theocratic mindset. So he's absolutely right. The hundred of centuries behind the Enlightenment that spread through the West, the printing press, the free speech, the condemnation of blasphemy laws, apostasy laws, things that you and I, we address here on this podcast, it would be foolhardy, idiocy, ignorance, to not recognize that something, now some would believe that it was the time in which Ishtihad, Ishtihad is the Arabic word for critical interpretation of Sharia, of Islamic scripture, in light of modern day. So Ishtihad, by any historical review, ended in 13th, 14th century, at the latest, possibly 12th century. So as Ishtihad ended, modernization of Sharia interpretations decreased. The Muslim world went from thousands of different schools of Sharia thought and interpretation and jurisprudence into just four Sunnis, Maliki, Shafi, Hanbali, and Hanafi, four different clerics that determined and wrote their own Sharia law. And that became some of the tradition. And even till today, if you ask me, Zudi, which one did you learn? Well, I basically learned Hanafi. That's the more predominant one in Syria. Now, if I applied Hanafi across the board, I don't believe I could be a patriotic or even loyal American citizen. It's incompatible with Western society, let alone Americanism. But personal Hanafi interpretation, the method of prayers, the details of prayers, the details of charity, zakat as it's called, rules of dietary permissions or restrictions, they vary a little bit. But 70 to 80 percent of Sharia law is common between those four Sunni schools. Now, the Shia have their own few schools, Jafari and others. And then you have a Sufi traditions where those who follow Sufism will follow a tariqah or a pathway with a scholar, like a guru. They're much more moderate, typically, more spiritual, mystical. But again, that doesn't make it compatible with Westernism. Typically, the Sufi tradition does separate mosque and state, is less concerned with the political, but again, modern interpretations of Islamic law have not gone through. So Boris Johnson's statements is simply stating fact. 
we Muslims need to deal with it instead of saying this is hate speech, ignorant or whatever way you want to paint it. And I don't know enough about the politics of Boris Johnson to 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 dive into the UK politics just like I get irritated when foreigners dive into the politics of President Trump, President Obama, or others. But at the end of the day, the statements stand. I disagree with the anthropomorphization of Islam, no different than I did when President Trump in the campaign in 16 said, Islam hates us. Islamists hate hate us. Political Islam is an ideology, hates Western freedom and democracy and liberty. Our republic. But the reality is that it's not wrong for Boris Johnson to claim that the hundreds of years that Islam is still, that the Muslim world is still behind the West, is related to theocracy and the lack of reform. And that's why we're leading, that's why I have a podcast about reform this. That's why we have Muslim reform movement and my work at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. So, fear not. We need to address these things. Empower your politicians, empower your thought leaders, empower your activists to question and explain, not just to cozy up to Islamic monarchs and those in the 12th century. Don't cozy up to them. Yeah, we may need some alliances geopolitically for multiple reasons, as I've talked about. But the reason ISIS keeps coming back is the trough from which they drink whether it's Saudi interpretations, Pakistani Diobandi interpretations, Wahhabi interpretations of the Saudis, wherever it might be, those are all interpretations that demonize Christians, demonize Jews, and others. We had a debate online where one of the pundits that you may see on Facebook and else and on Fox, she's also appeared on CNN, is Kanta Ahmed, and, uh, um, you know, we have, obviously, there are many leaders in the Muslim reform movement. Kanta has never identified herself with that for whatever reason that might be. I'll leave it to you to ask her. But on her Facebook page, she sort of let out because Ezra Nomani, in a panel with her on Fox, brought up the fact that the opening prayer of the Quran, which we recite 17 times a day minimum for Muslims that pray and or that recite that opening passage, which is the most commonly memorized passage in Islam, has seven sections to it, or ayat. And in those sections, one of them says that we Muslims should take the straight path. Sirat al-Mustaqim not like the path of those who've gone astray. And then it says, as a footnote, in most translations, especially the primary one by Muhammad Khan, unlike the Jews and the Christians. And then it says basically that they're polytheists. That's not in the Quran in Arabic, 
but it's certainly the predominant English translation. And again, most Muslims don't speak Arabic. Most Muslims use the translations, will speak it in Arabic for prayer purposes, but will believe the translations that predominate when over 99% of them are funded by billions of petrodollars. They saturate the human bandwidth with their radical translations. And their translations demonize Jews and Christians are incompatible. So bottom line, however, is Ezra brought this up. We were talking about radicalization. They were doing a segment on why are Christians persecuted in Iraq and elsewhere. And Ezra pointed out, Ezra Nomani pointed out very appropriately, and I hope to invite her and begin having guests on this podcast. We'll invite her soon. I've talked to her before on various radio programs and she pointed out that when the primary prayer that Muslims recite the most demonizes Jews and Christians, how can you not be surprised? How can you not be surprised when they're persecuted, murdered, their churches are burned? Yes, apologists like myself and, and other faithful Muslims will say, that passage can't mean that. Other passages allow us to intermarry between Jews and Christians without that marriage demanding at any time that the Jew or Christian change their faith. And thus we in the Muslim Reform Movement believe that Muslims don't have a monopoly on heaven, that those who believe in the God of Abraham are in the straight path, do not need to be converted, God forbid, and that we each have our own truth. So the Quran, if it has the same author, cannot contradict itself when it has a chapter on Mary and the virgin birth, talks about intermarriage with Christians and Jews and respects that intermarriage, and yet, and then says, do not take them as friends? That passage is mistranslated also by the Saudis. That's in chapter 5. Chapter 5 of the Quran says, do not take them as awliya, as the Arabic term. Oliyat does not mean friends, as the Saudi translation, the predominant one globally is, or the Pakistani translation of Yusuf Ali, the Muhammad Khan translation. They all say Oliyat means friends. A wali is a legal sponsor, a witness in a court. So again, if you're going to have an Islamic court, if you're going to have a, a canonic court for Christians, ask your Catholic friends if you have a legal proceeding, an arbitration in your church, could a Muslim or a Jew or a Protestant even come to that church and provide witness of a legal proceeding? I don't think so. It needs to be a Catholic that understands that legal tradition, that believes in that legal tradition and respects it by practice. So this is so important. Why did I go down this path? Well, Kanta rejected, outright rejected any debate about the opening prayer. I think in many ways misinterpreted what Ezra was saying when she was talking about translation. She said, uh, this is baloney, it never happens, and she rejects any type of insinuation that the predominant translation of the first passage is that. And then when I responded and others responded and showed translations pictures of that, she removed it, deleted it, and said that cannot be said, and basically invoked her own limitation on free speech. So what does this 
tell you? It tells you that there's diversity in the Muslim community. Some of us approach debate more healthy in a more healthy way versus a more dogmatic, autocratic way in which there are things that just cannot be debated. And I think this is important. You're going to see, as you've seen in Christian history and reform, some reformists welcome debate and respect it in a humble way. Others will reject it and feel that it's their way or the highway, even though they may be following the similar bandwidth of other reformers of questioning the theocrats, as Kanta has so well done. So the bottom line is, is behavior matters. Behavior and debate matters, engaging in reality. She then not only removed the Facebook post in which she initiated an attack on Ezra, saying that nobody should question the first passage, which is not what she was doing, but yet she initiated that. Ezra responded humbly and said, wasn't questioning the first passage, you're misrepresenting it. We questioned the interpretation, the translation, and the footnotes that demonized Jews and Christians that the Saudis put in. And then I echoed that. Kanta then deletes our posts on her Facebook page and then blocks us on Twitter and Facebook. I have those captured and reposted them for those interested. But I think this also exposes the reality for the debates that are happening that need to happen in the community. Next, what the heck is going on with Ilhan Omar? She's a troll. She's trolling President Trump. And then President Trump responds and the Democratic Party wants to hitch its wagon onto the Islamists because of social media platforms and the squad has their press release. Again, I hate that term, the squad, but more like the suicide squad or whatever they are. The four ladies, a socialist, two Islamists, And more, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar represent the anti-Semitic Islamist wing of the democratic socialists of prominence. But then when the conservatives, when others that disagree start to question them, they start, even with Pelosi this week, we saw Pelosi telling them, listen, you guys are freshmen. We have a process. We have a majority that rejects, that disagrees with you. Don't think you can just bulldoze your way through, and I'm paraphrasing. And their response is, oh, it's because they are women of color, quote-unquote. Their response is that it is because of race. And that, again, is gaslighting. They gaslight everybody. I've talked to you on this podcast about what gaslighting is. But they gaslight everybody about race. That's the only lens that they view. Their Muslim, Ilhan Omar, views her identity of Islam as a race, conveniently. And it's not a race. It's an ideology. Being an American is an ideology. So when that tempest this week arose where... President Trump tweeted out that maybe they should consider leaving. Why are they here? They should go back to the countries in which they came and fix their problems over there, he said. 
versus the ones here as they had a disproportionate, exaggerated response to issues in America. We're not a perfect democracy. We have our warts. We have our problems. We're trying to fix them. But to compare them and focus on them as the left, as Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib do with American Israel and obsess on them to boycotting them while they ignore and completely turn a blind eye to the problems in Somalia and Turkey and echo the verbiage, the radicalization of Al Jazeera and try to shorten the prison terms and the convictions of ISIS operatives in Minnesota. I think that's a problem. That's a problem of perspective. And when Tucker Carlson on Fox News brings it up, what happens? Oh, now they're calling for a boycott of his program because he simply questioned about saying that she is a living alarm about what happens to lack of assimilation. Now, National Review responded and said, actually, she is assimilated, assimilated to the far left. Yeah, I can see that. So all of these things are debates about terms. Assimilated to what? This debate, my message, this debate is extraordinarily important. America needs to have a discussion about what does immigration mean for each party, building a wall, creating a vetting process for immigrants is not anti-immigration. It's about what type of immigration we should have. So if you believe that the type of immigration America should have is just an open borders, anybody comes in, no ideological vetting, just make sure they're not criminals, mafia, or terrorists, that's one viewpoint. So when Ilhan Omar calls our troops terrorists, as she did in a tweet in 2017 in reference to our service, including myself in Operation Restore Hope in 1993-94, she said those militaries killed more Somalis than the warlords that she escaped. That is the narrative Ilhan Omar is pushing. She pushes a, pushes a narrative about deep anti-Semitism that she, that she wraps herself in in reference to Israel, pushing tropes of about American Jews and financial influence and all the other nonsense that that is a libel that should be confronted. And again, is the same type of ideology seen across Al Jazeera, across Islamist media, and elsewhere. And the far left is also saying that. The Democrats couldn't even get themselves to condemn her comments about anti-Semitism. Now, she ran. She ran with with video clippings in Minnesota where she said she would not endorse BDS. She does not endorse and would not push it as a congressperson. What did she introduce this week, ladies and gentlemen? She introduced a resolution to support BDS. Yes, 
She's trying to support BDS. And she says it's a First Amendment issue about boycott, divestment, sanctions. And there's no doubt that any rational human being looks at the BDS movement. And by the way, the Democratic Party just dismissed it this week and said, oh, it's dead on arrival. It's not going to happen. And yet she's pushing it. Well, it's not that simple, ladies and gentlemen. She lied to her constituents. She uh, is not only dishonest, but the BDS movement proves that she wants to destroy Israel, remove it from existence, and is taking the position of the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas, Erdogan's Turkey, Iran, and every other country that chants death, and every other Islamist movement that chants death to Israel, death to America. So, we can't minimize these things. Her resolution sought to push back against U.S. laws banning the boycott of Israel. Reaction from uh, a number of pundits said that this is just depictive of the radicalism of her ideology. And if you look at those that lead the BDS movement in America, the Muslims that do, they are radical Islamists, professors, and elsewhere. The, the, the supporters of that movement and those that the Muslims that take them on are perceived as not towing the line of the Palestinian movement. She introduced the resolution to defend the boycott of Israel, likening it in her verbiage to the boycott of Nazi Germany or Soviet Union. Can you believe that? And yet, the mainstream media, supposedly, I hate that term, but whether it's the Washington Post, ABC, CBS, they viewed President Trump as the racist because he questioned and put her in her place about her ideology. And yet, she compared our closest ally on the planet to Nazi Germany and Soviet Union. She said, we're introducing a resolution to really speak about the American values that support and believe in our ability to exercise our First Amendment rights in regard to boycotting. We're introducing a resolution to defend free speech. Americans of conscience have a proud, this is Ilhan Omar, have a proud history of participating in boycotts to advocate for human rights abroad, including boycotting Nazi Germany from March 1933 to October 1941 in response to dehumanization of the Jewish people and lead up to the Holocaust. <laughs> remember? I'm old enough to remember when Rashida Tlaib two months ago was doing a Yahoo radio program and offensively said in a sarcastic kind of way that she feels good that her forefathers in Palestinian areas welcomed Jews in. No, ignored the fact that they declared war, rejected the state of Israel. No, she said they welcomed them in. And that somehow she dismissed the genocidal aspect of the Holocaust. Omar now is doing it again. Meanwhile, she gaslights President Trump and America to say that it's a white supremacist country that rejects her. Yes, the chanting the chanting at President Trump's rally this week of send her back was gross, was not American. 
and, and a major distraction. But as I said on Fox News, listen, to think that we every day, however you want to describe me, Syrian American, Arab American, Muslim American, whatever identity group you'd like to pigeonhole me into for this discussion, I speak to the communities, many of whom are my friends, some of my antagonists, as we do in any ethnic communities, but in ours is very young. Some are new immigrants within the last five to 10 years, some within 20 years. And as they complain daily, hour to hour, about the policies, about Muslim ban, all this other nonsense tropes of idiocy that are brought back from the Islamist media and spread in America, I tell them, listen, if you don't like it here, why are you here? It's a choice. Being American is a choice. It's a choice when you come here, and it's a choice every day as you wake up and love being here, and you can leave. It's a choice. You're not trapped here. It's not a prison like North Korea. It's not a prison like Syria where you can't even get a visa to leave. Now, some Syrians are kicked out, or they're tortured and imprisoned and killed. That's not the United States, ladies and gentlemen, and I tell my Islamist antagonists, Arabist antagonists that prefer whatever they might prefer. You, you prefer Russian nationalism? Go to Russia. You prefer Chinese communism? Go to China. You prefer Venezuelan socialism? Move to Venezuela. Brazil? Egypt? Tunisia? Tunisia is an aspiring democracy. Go help them. And they say, no, no, I'm American. I love America. Well, if you love America, one of the reasons the American Muslim community is being radicalized is the bandwidth of 90% of our conversation ends up being in the community about all the ills that are America's policy. The military is evil. No, is it a force of good or is it a force of evil? If you repeatedly spend and obsess most of your time that American military is not a force of good, how do you think our kids and our kids' kids are going to feel about this country. I served in the U.S. Navy because my family taught me that one of the most successful parts of America is that the military fighting force did not want to fight wars, never targeted its own people, and is a moral force of good. That every officer, every enlisted they had met was a good person. Yeah, there are some criminals, just like there's criminals in every corporation and business that exists. But that percentage is extremely small compared to the deep, endemic, evil corruption of the Syrian military, Egyptian military, or other militaries in the Middle East that when they're faced with dissent, use weapons. Even the colonial powers... As my grandfather used to say, yes, colonialism was not was not ideal. The West, if they had it to do over, obviously are no longer subscribing to colonialism. But when Gandhi and the and the Indian dissidents laid on the tracks, the train stopped. The British train stopped. Civil disobedience only works against those who fear humanity who love humanity and are a force of good. Yeah, I'm not saying that there weren't 
any crimes done by any of these colonial powers. That's not the debate. But the debate is, is it generally more proportionally good or proportionally evil? Do we proportionally love or proportionally hate America? Ilhan Omar represents the tip of the iceberg, the face of movements that are Islamist in the West that train and coddle and and stimulate and instill in our youth a sense of victimization, a sense of anti-Americanism, separatism that tells them that the narrative of our American identity is one in which this country is against our values, it doesn't represent our values, and that we're trying to bring Islamic values to the West. Are you kidding me? Which Islamic values? Let's talk back to Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, his comments that Muslim-majority countries are centuries behind is apropos. So no, there is a debate. It is not racism when I tell my Arabic friends or my Syrian or Muslim friends that complain over and over, and I never hear them talk about Assad, or, or I do, but not that frequently. They're spending more time obsessing about the fascism, as Ilhan Omar said of President Trump, seriously, because of some tweets that she may feel have some nativist twinges to them. That makes him a fascist? What are his policies doing that are empowering free markets and healthcare, that are empowering less unemployment, that are decreasing the influence and regulation of government upon the American citizen? His policies have not proven to be authoritarian. Now, as we confront immigration problems, insecurity, effects on national security, I think that it is appropriate to say, you know what, what happened to the time, and I think we should rekindle this conversation about immigrants, the conservative movement is pro-immigration. Those who seek to come to America seeking freedom, seeking the ability to build their own company, entrepreneurships, build their own mosques, churches, they come here to do that without any interference from government. But they come here as a choice embracing Americanism. And that choice, that choice is, I think, such a key aspect to why I get so upset at the way this discussion has been evolving. Why does the left get to determine who's the fascist and and whose narrative is un-American or anti-American or who loves America that you know the the New York Times ran an editorial this week that said President Trump hates America. So now we've got these battling back and forth ping pong match between who hates who's the each side saying the other hates America more. Well, I'm sorry. When Ilhan Omar says our troops are terrorists, laughs at the suggestion of Al-Qaeda, then actually talks about American terrorism in videos where she 
Seriously, find it. You'll see where she shrugs her shoulders and giggles about Al-Qaeda. She said, oh, they always say Al-Qaeda with fear quotes, but not America. As if America is just as bad or if not worse than Al-Qaeda in her jocularity. Or her advancement of BDS movement or her tweets about Israel and the Benjamins and all this other nonsense. So all that doesn't deserve criticism or even the question that should be researched of her tax evasion, marital fraud, campaign fines she paid, $5,000 because she used she paid legal fees from her campaign, personal legal fees about her tax issues. For two years, she filed taxes with a guy that has the same name as her brother while she was married to somebody else. And now there's story breaking that as David Steinberg, who did so much of the deep research for Pajamas PJ Media, said on December 20th, 2016, this was a couple of years ago, a few weeks after her election to Minnesota State Legislature, Ilhan Omar was in Mogadishu with then-President Hassan Sheikh Mohamud Mahmoud a favorite for re-election. He invited her to appear with him prior to the election taking place. He's got photos there. Omar likely met at least one other Somali presidential candidate on her trip, according to a speech by her soon-to-be husband, Ahmed Hersi. Ilhan had just flown from Nairobi to Mogadishu on a plane with former Somali Prime Minister Mohammed Abdullahi Mohammed, known as Formaju. Formaggio, a U.S. citizen who inconceivably had boarded that plane as a Buffalo, New York cubicle employee of the New York Department of Transportation, was the eventual surprise winner of Somali's presidency on February 8, 2017. The New York Times deemed his bribe-fueled win as one of the most fraudulent political events in Somalia's history. In the run-up, some parliament seats had gone for more than $1 million each. Somalia is rated as the most corrupt regime on the planet. Some analysts even said that the Shabab Militant Group, one of the deadliest Islamist organizations in the world, isn't even trying to derail the vote because the corruption free-for-all almost makes the militants look upstanding by comparison. And then remember the so-called Muslim ban? Somalia was occluded on that travel ban. President Trump pushed that executive order. And the 90-day provisional ban on January 27, 2017. Formaggio was sworn in as president on February 16. And then he named Hassan Ali Khairi to be Somalia's prime minister by submitting his name for parliamental approval. Kyrie also then demonstrated some significant corruption, but back in Minneapolis, Ilhan Omar and Ahmed Hersi were keynote speakers at a February 27 community celebration of Formaggio's election, one of the most fraudulent political events in Somalia's history. Grounds 
became grounds for a party in Minneapolis. Standing behind a podium bearing Fermaja's image and wearing a lapel button of the same, Ilhan exuberantly praised him and the newly formed Somali government in a brief speech marked by religious anecdotes and imagery. Hersey similarly praised Fermaggio, adding a specific mention of Ali Kairi. He then became Prime Minister. On March 3rd, Ilhan Omar's brother-in-law, U.S. citizen Mohammed Kainan, started working as permanent secretary to Prime Minister Kairi. And the story goes on. Wow! And then... You start following her, you realize a month ago she showed a video on her Twitter feed of the beautiful, she congratulated Somali community about their Independence Day. And I responded on Twitter, I said, you know, I have to tell you, Syria has its Independence Day. I would never, I don't care when they're independence, now their government's corrupt. Sure, if it ever democratizes, you may want to celebrate that, but do you seriously celebrate an Independence Day for a regime that's tyrannical? None of us would do that, especially those of us who are American patriots. My parents escaped there, have never thought twice about what day Syrian Independence Day is. And yet, Ilhan Omar's celebration of July 4th seemed to be muted compared to her celebration of Somali Independence Day. So all these things are not racism to question her proportionality of love for American ideology, for Americanism, her choice. Does she choose America? Does she love our troops? Does she love our servicemen and women, our civil servants? Or does she love herself? And does the left infantilize her and not hold her accountable to all these issues that she's ignored about, be it her anti-Semitism, be it her fealty for Maduro's regime, fealty for Erdogan. She was meeting with Erdogan just a year ago when she went to Turkey and showed him fealty with no criticism. And then when this is questioned publicly, they say, oh, look, she criticized Saudi Arabia. Well, sure she did. The Islamists now in the last year have abandoned Saudi Arabia as Saudi Arabia abandoned them. That does not make them moderate. It just makes them at odds with the corporate Islamists. We've discussed that before. So, you know what? It's not racism in our community to tell each other ask each other whether we choose America and to say, you know what, it seems that you're not choosing America, that you're hating America. You can criticize policies, you can you can show a tough love, but you should also sh- show that in perspective proportionality where our youth should hear you condemn not only Saudi Arabia, but condemn all Islamism, all Islamist movements, Islamist theocracies, Iran, Turkey, Somalia, Al-Shabaab, But that's not the narrative, that's not the lens that she had. She wants to travel to Israel now to talk about the occupation. Does she talk about the occupation in other countries? How about the East Turkestan occupation of China on those Muslims? Or the occupation in Cyprus? 
or the occupation elsewhere. No, it's only the so-called occupation in Israel, which even that is far from the truth. So yes, we should vet our immigrants about ideology. They should re- not only reject where they're leaving, but embrace our American Republic and embrace our Constitution. More to come on this, but I do think this is such a key, vital part of what we're doing in the reform movement and aspects of reform. Last, I want to briefly tell you, there's been some conversation about the return of ISIS, about the fact that ISIS is having a second wind, per se. It's worrisome. There's a lot of showing that in northern Iraq, especially not necessarily in Syria, but in northern Iraq, it's starting to reconstitute, maybe not as ISIS, but as jihadists with with economic flow, and they're starting to regain some of their financial wherewithal. And we're seeing this through publications online, through spread of ideas, and it again shows you that the whack-a-mole continues. The whack-a-mole will continue until we address the ideology. Just like in the Cold War, it wasn't just fighting wars against the Russians, against the Soviets in Vietnam or elsewhere in Korea. It was an ideological pushback, an advancement of liberty and freedom against communism, against socialism, against Soviet theories. And that's what we need to do, or you're going to continue to see resurgence of radical Islamist groups. As always, it is an honor. It was great to go through with you some of the the latest in the debate about these radical far leftists and the red-green axis. And always more to come. I will be with you again next week on Reform This, Blaze TV podcast. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.